0: This episode is sponsored by Shell. There is an urgent need to tackle climate change, and we are determined to play our part. Learn more about Shell's climate ambition at shell.us forward slash net zero ambition.
1: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, food priorities for the new administration, a deep dive into financing the blue economy, how commercial tenants continue to press for greener buildings amid a pandemic, and why you can't spell renewable energy without the letter S. We're powered up this week on 350. It's November 13th, 2020, Friday the 13th. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me and feeling lucky over in Midland Park, New Jersey is GreenBiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather.
0: Hey, I do feel lucky for many reasons, which we won't go into right now, but yeah, Friday the 13th, weird, 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 Uh, weird. (laughs) Yeah. How uh, are you, Joel?
1: uh, I'm feeling lucky too, you know. Mm -hmm. We've all had a little bit of a bigger spring in our step this week for some obvious reasons, but you know. I mean, the election is one thing and the the personality change and and the political change is all, of course, important. But what's really interesting is how quickly the conversation has ramped up about what this means in our world, what this means for renewable energy, for the circular economy, for sustainable food systems, for uh, transportation. Uh, And our analysts have been leaning into that. It's been really great even in this these very obviously early days
0: yeah it's it's um it's definitely a boost for my wings. <laughs> I'll tell you that much but I will say that um and i've I've said this many times before our our readership has been so faithful and focused on continuing their work for so many many months during during the distractions and the 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 policy changes and so forth and this is just ju- sort of justification and, well, I'm sure they feel amount, a certain amount of jubilation as well. So, yeah, it's just exciting to me to see um, so much possibility.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it's a bit of a two-edged sword, Heather, because, um, you know, there, there is this, uh, one could make a case that a lot of the action, and there's, to your point, there's been this amazing continuation of an acceleration an amplification of everything that was going on in sustainable business during the Trump administration, uh, in spite of the obvious lack of interest slash hostility towards so, so many of these topics. Um, and, and I think there's always the assumption, okay, now happy days are here again. We have a, we will have a president who is uh, interested in committed to, I mean, climate change seems to be one of the top four things that, uh, That President elect Biden and and Vice President elect Harris are are, are concerned about around the pandemic, the economy, structural racism, and climate change. I mean, that's huge right there. But, you know, there's also the sense of, well, you know, will we get complacent? I mean, there's some case to be made that that happened during the Obama years that we assumed, okay, now we've got somebody there uh, who really is, you know, gets what we're all about so we can take our foot off the, uh electric vehicle pedal for the moment and uh and because things will move in our direction and I'm not exactly sure that's the case. So what's the right amount? I mean there's also I'm arguing with myself now on the other side there is this, we have to make up for lost time and uh and and the problems aren't getting any smaller so we there may be this uh, inexorable push forward. It'll be interesting to see.
0: It will be interesting to see and I think I think it's such a different mindset from that previous period of time. I think people did realize that they had taken many things for granted that they shouldn't have, and um, I do feel that people are in a different place. And I also feel um, that some of the really great work at the state level will accelerate and at least not be, um, you know, barred or, or blocked from happening. And I think that 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 will continue, and um, those. Those things are happening, so I, I don't know. I I, I, I hear you. I, I pe- appreciate it and the complacency, um, but you know, frankly, President Elect Biden's going to have a lot of work to do because the Senate, of course, is still very much, um, you know, a, a McConnell <laughs> world. So there will be a lot. There won't be a lot of things that he can do on a bipartisan. Basis, um, yeah. at least not with a lot, a lot of work. So anyway, well,
1: lots to talk about in the coming weeks, and in the coming weeks, uh, starting this week, we're, we're, uh, later in this program, we'll hear from Jim Giles, our food analyst at GreenBiz, who's going to talk about some of the priorities from for sustainable food systems for the new administration. And uh, later in the in, in in the coming weeks, we'll hear from uh, Sarah Golden on energy and Kitty. Ferrenbacher on transportation and mobility, Lauren Phipps on circular economy and others, you know, talking about what some of these challenges and opportunities that we see ahead. So look forward to that. But now let's look backwards into the Week in Review.
0: start us off with one of our great verge 20 coverage stories uh, by meg wilcox and she wrote about some of the sessions that we had during the program about linking the social factors um, you know things like environmental justice and consideration for communities of color with the environmental aspects of renewable energy Um, we had some really very dynamic sessions um, during the event about how companies are looking at their renewable energy procurement in a very, very different way. The two companies specifically that she writes about are Microsoft and Chanel. Um, I've written about Microsoft's pr- plan. They have a a pledge to develop 500 megawatts of solar projects that are in disadvantaged communities, right? So they have this big renewable energy goal and they've it, they've gone ahead and said, we must have at least this amount that's it's got these other factors in it, not just the okay. It's a cheap, it's a cheap project. Um, it's good for our renewable goal, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just um, that program is 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 super interesting. But I didn't know about the Chanel one. They've they've committed thirty five million towards solar energy projects for low-income multifamily households in California in partnership with Sunrun. So the piece that Meg Wilcox wrote, one of our great contributors, focuses on just some of the factors that the procurement folks are using when they think about these, these deals. It's, uh, it's, I love this trend, um, and I love that there's more, more organizations that are popping up to really drive uh, progress here.
1: And could there be two companies more different than Microsoft and Chanel? Uh, I think that's a really great thing. It does show the diversity of companies that are leaning into this. Yeah, this, this was a big theme at Verge and it's, it's become a big theme for us across our entire event and media platform at Greenbiz is, is how does the 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 social justice piece of this fit into what traditionally had been environmental sustainability stories and you know and and we've talked about this for for years in some ways but it was always like oh yes and we also need to do this but now it's not just a oh by the way it, it we're seeing companies and these are two examples you know, baking it into their strategy. Uh, another example is, is Apple. Uh, there's this great quote by Lisa Jackson, who as you may recall, kicked off the the Verge 20. I had a conversation with her and she had this lovely thing. She said, maybe we shouldn't take on climate change. We should take on justice. And by doing so, we can solve the climate crisis. And, you know, at first that's like a, a little bit of a wow. I think I understand that. Uh, I sort of get that, but that kind of sounds cool when she expounded on that and described what they're doing in terms of how they're, they're addressing their, the siting of projects and the funding of projects and the bringing in partners and suppliers and contractors and others, uh, and, and how, and investing uh, in RD money into the historically black colleges and universities and looking at the human aspects of of mining for the metals that are end up in, in Apple, you know, phones and computers and, and things. They are, you know, early days to be sure, but still, uh, you know, really integrating the uh, social justice issues into their environmental issues and with their company strategic issues, who they're going to work with and partner with. And, uh, this is, uh, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that this would now, uh, you know, we're seeing more and more stories about how renewable energy yeah. partnerships also follow this line.
0: Yeah, and I have to say I'm taking one like potential story lead away from Meg's story as well. It's the this I love the I love the acronym for this group, BOSS, the black owners in solar services. Um, and they're a, a group of more than a dozen black solar entrepreneurs. And I think that's the other point I, I just want to make is that. We need to include these small businesses that have these great skill sets and have this great knowledge and understand these communities in that conversation. So, so many times we we tend to try to use the same, you know, co- consultants and so forth and contacts to do these things, and we need to to open our tent and and to bring these these uh, great minds and imaginations into the conversation. So, yeah. anyway, well, look for boss. of
1: of bosses, let's talk about when the boss says it's time to go back to the office. Um, and we're not there yet is it, unfortunately we're in this uh, third wave of this very, very uh, dramatic and serious wave of infections and, and hospitalizations and sadly deaths around COVID. Uh, but companies increasingly are, are starting to map out, uh, plans for a post pandemic return to the cubicles and um there's a we have a, a story by another one of our terrific contributors senior writer adam Aston, about how the emphasis on greening those buildings hasn't gone away even amid the health concerns um, and talks about a couple of companies uh workday which is out here in the bay area which is uh, a uh, software platform company enterprise software platform company and and other landlords, Kilroy Realty, a a large landlord and developer with uh, properties up up and down the uh, Pacific coast. Um, You know, tenants and employees are still hugely concerned about the environmental gains, maybe not just in spite of COVID, but maybe even because of COVID. And that was a um, paraphrase from Sarah Neff, the senior vice president of sustainability at Kilroy. So um, and it's not just about renewable energy anymore. tenants are worried about a whole range of other things. So I think this is a pretty interesting trend.
0: It's an interesting trend, and I think one of the potential um, ways of moving forward out of this pandemic is is with lease rene- renegotiations, right? As we know, many commercial landlords are probably more willing to to talk to talk terms with their with their tenants, and this is an opportunity for those of of our audience that don't own their own buildings that are renting or that have a lease to, to go in and get smarter about, um, what those lease terms say. And so the story also has some great resources about how to start those conversations. So there's some, some definitely linked, some good links in here. I think that people should consult as they, as they have those conversations and as they think about what that office, um, arrangement will look like as they go back.
1: Yeah, it does bring up this uh, term that frankly, I haven't heard for quite a while and not just during pandemic, but uh, uh, even before this green lease. Uh, those have been yeah. kicking around <laughs> since the nineties. Yeah. You know, how do you, uh, what are the components of a lease, lease the terms that uh, can apply to uh, environmental issues, uh, you know, when you don't you're not paying your own electricity bill or water bill or waste bill because it's part of a larger commercial property. There's a lot less incentive to to reduce waste or save energy or water, um, and and companies that are already committed to greenhouse gas emissions uh, or energy reduction or those kinds of things you may not receive the financial benefit because they're paying this triple net lease fee that includes everything, and so there's no incentive for 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 saving money, let alone saving the planet. So Greenlee's terms uh, help address some of those issues for at least some kinds of businesses. So I, I, I encourage you to take a look at that. But let's move over to our last story that we're going to talk about now, which is also in the finance area, which is about how to finance the blue economy. And that, of course, is this uh, uh, ocean economy as it's called um, the value of fishing and tourism and and in some cases mining and drilling um, and and how do you do that where you not only don't harm oceans but actually maybe even support ocean health and biodiversity and uh and and while realizing the full economic potential that A sustainable ocean economy can bring. So, uh, this is a piece that came out of the World Resources Institute and some authors there and from, uh, University of British Columbia about some of the financing mechanisms and the opportunities for action to, to what, uh, they call plug the blue finance, uh, gap while, uh, you know, again, addressing e- equity and, and diversity and, and a whole range of issues, out uh, and protecting the ocean. So it's another one of these complicated but very doable stories if we just know what to do.
0: And I think that that's part of the the issue there is the knowing what to do, right? I just don't think it's gotten not enough attention. Part, part, partly, you know, the, some of the money that's been going into ocean quote investments has been sort of historical, like fossil fuels type, you know, like exploration for oil and gas companies and so forth. So not really the, or, or industrial fishing for that matter, right. Putting subsidies out for there for these big fleets. Um, and this is just one of those stories that, that basically says, yo, people like, just think about this differently. Um, we've also seen, more information about things like ocean sequestration. So there's just a tremendous tremendous um, opportunity for the dialogue to be shifted. Um, One of the figures that that just really jumped out at me for in in this story was that investing one dollar in key ocean actions could yield at least five dollars in global benefits. So like there's some real good information about how, you know, for example, looking at a a coral reef and and helping repair the reefs and how that could could apply to tourism um, and especially you know in places where they really need that um, things like fisheries and sustainable fisheries and so forth um, and, and which also PS has a a benefit in in terms of a social component as well you know helping indigenous communities retain that livelihood and just it's just again this is one of those those um, kind of like. Yeah, oh, oh <laughs> kinds of stories. Um, one development to look for, I think that that could signal um, some progress, is the development of the sustainable blue economy finance principle. Um, so, there, th- this principle is is trying to link private and public sector financing um, to SDG fourteen uh, progress. You know, so the sustainable development goal fourteen. And so forth. So I don't know. I just, I don't. I'm not going to regurgitate all of the the suggestions. But I I believe that this is just one of those, um, this great great opportunities that especially now coming out of this pandemic, there's so much opportunity. In Verge 20, I had the honor of moderating a main stage session with two respected environmental justice leaders focused on exploring how companies can become authentically involved in shaping economic and environmental development programs at the city and state level. Elizabeth Yumpierre is executive director of UPROSE, Brooklyn's oldest Latino community-based organization with a commitment to intergenerational organizing for a just urban policy. Everything from transportation to open space to climate justice. And Rawa Gumratzian is Executive Director of PUSH from Buffalo, New York. Their mission is to mobilize residents to create strong neighborhoods with quality, affordable housing, to expand local hiring opportunities, and to advance economic and environmental justice. Our discussion focused on a wide range of topics centered on exploring how businesses can engage most effectively with local environmental justice organizations. I asked both to describe what a productive relationship looks like. Here are highlights from their answers starting first with Rawa Gumartian and followed by Elizabeth Yampierre.
2: So, Push Buffalo is a place based initiative uh, in the heart of the Westside community. And really are, um, we work at the intersections of racial, economic, and environmental justice. And so one of those platforms is that we have a workforce, uh, called the hiring hall where we take folks that have, you know, recently, uh, recent returning citizens. We have folks that have been under or unemployed for long periods of time and upskilled them in the trades, including building renewable energy projects and green construction. And uh, we work with a partner. Uh, What we do is we provide wraparound services and hands-on training. So these trainees that went through our program were being connected to a pretty large development project downtown. And I would say that 99.9% of them were folks of color. Mm -hmm. And they would come in there push-hitties. It was about 24 of them that we placed into this one site. And they were experiencing a lot of racism, in particular from the white workers and folks that were from the trade unions. And, um, you know, we kept working with the employer to explain to them what was happening. They took photos of, you know, really terrible words that were being written on the walls, including the N-word. And uh, what we realized is that the manager, um, the site supervisor, really was not sensitive to the needs and he himself was racist. So we worked with the CEO of the company and um, they ended up firing the gentleman because the workers were actually doing such tremendous work. Uh, they were experienced in the trades. They showed up to work on time. We provided a lot of wraparound services and soft skills training for them. Um, and really what I appreciated about that story is that the CEO understood the importance of that. And one of the things that we often say in our community is uh, when folks are looking to come work with us in our community, uh, how you enter a place is important. How you behave when you're in place is important. And How you exit that relationship is also important. Elizabeth, let's, let's have some
3: thoughts from you on this topic. Um, well, UPROS is um, an intergenerational women of color-led grassroots organization that works at the intersection of racial injustice and climate change and has been in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, since 1966. So it's an old organization with deep roots. And in that time, we've doubled the open base, stopped the siding of power plants, engaged in brownfield remediation. Uh, we're engaged in uh, community-based uh, planning and participatory research, Uh building and facilitating a green way. All of those initiatives uh, really bring uh, stakeholders together in a meaningful way. And businesses are encouraged and invited to be part of all of that decision-making planning. Um, the truth is that we've had excellent relationships with some businesses and really bad relationships with others. So with some, for example, we work to try to engage them in climate adaptation, and we provide them with best practices so that they survive extreme weather events. Uh, With New York, um, with, for example, the Sims Recycling Facility, we worked with them from the very beginning so that it would become a carbon-neutral state-of-the-art facility that would serve our needs but not be an eyesore or polluting facility on our industrial waterfront. Uh, With Patagonia, we helped build a cultural practice, which we continue to have a relationship with them uh, to this day on how to get their their workers meaningfully engaged in community initiatives. So there's opportunities throughout. And then there's resistance too, uh, when things like the ones that were named by Rawa become a challenge for us, which is that sometimes businesses don't see themselves as part of the community and see our community as a font for wealth, for them, but they don't see themselves as being part or in community. We're seen as a resource and not as a partner, and um, and they sometimes seem to have, even though they don't live in the neighborhood, more power than we do in decision making. And so we deconstruct that, we challenge that, and we build different kinds of relationships.
0: I encourage you to watch for the whole video of our session coming soon on GreenBiz.com. But for the purposes of this podcast, I just want to close with. I asked both of them to reflect on how companies can be more authentic in their community engagement. I'll leave you with their answers, starting first with Elizabeth and closing with Rawa.
3: I think businesses really need to stop thinking that they're part of a community of businesses and start thinking that they're part of community um, and working with us as partners um, mm-hmm. and uh, and sharing, being authentic, uh, providing information that is helpful. We. Believe in investing in our businesses because they're the economic backbone of our communities. Um, and we'd like to think that they think the same of us. Um, in terms of strengthening social cohesion, it's necessary for us to work mm-hmm. in a way that builds just relationships and engages us in transformation.
2: Yeah, one thought for me is that they, when they're first starting to plan the project, that's when they should actually invite community communities in. We've got a lot of solutions. We've been working on these for decades. And so bring us in at the start of your project.
1: This week, we're gonna begin a series of conversations with some of our Verge analysts to talk about the implications of the 2020 US elections on energy, food, water, carbon, transportation. Uh, Starting off this week with food, because who doesn't like to start with a good meal? And our Verge Food Senior Analyst and the chair of the Verge Food Conference, Jim Giles. Uh, Jim, welcome. Hey, Joe. So you wrote in your Food Weekly Newsletter this week, uh, a great piece. You talked to a number of people about their message to the president-elect on food. Uh, Talk a little bit about what did you ask them and what did you learn? Yeah, this is something
4: I do regularly, although I have to say the response was very different this time. What I do is reach out to a bunch of people, 15, 20 folks working in sustainable food systems um, and just ask them to weigh in on a particular topic. Um, I have to say this time when I reached out and said what would your message be to the the president-elect Joe Biden in terms of what he should focus on as we try and transition to a more sustainable food system that request brought far more replies than anything else I've asked people to comment on and I did it at extremely short notice and I guess this shouldn't be surprising at all we've had uh, we being people in the sustainability community have had a very frustrating four years under this administration. And, and people are ex- obviously extremely excited about the change that's coming uh, and a and chance actually to, to, you know, put some policies into action.
1: Yeah, well, I guess yeah, there's a growing appetite for food uh, systems related uh, in, uh, initiatives and policies. What sort of rose to the top?
4: I mean, I would say the one that came back repeatedly was regenerative agriculture. Uh, So so for people who are not familiar with it, regenerative agriculture is this idea that uh, we can farm in a way that actually draws down carbon and stores it in the soil and regenerates soil fertility, increases water retention, things like that. And it's a dramatically different way. It's far less extractive than our current monoculture systems are. uh, And that's how we get it's name. It's regenerative. And regenerative is at this very exciting place in the U.S. right now where there's um, quite a lot of data to suggest that it really does have the impacts that we want in terms of uh, soil fertility and maybe carbon sequestration. But it's it's still practiced at a a relatively on a relatively small number of acres. So the big question is, how do we how do we get it to a large number of acres and can we do so in a way that will really deliver the benefits that we want without impacting things like yield and the amount of land that we use? And um, w- what I'm hearing you know, from the folks I talk to is that uh, there's a big role for the government, particularly the Department of Agriculture in this transition. And, and what I found encouraging is that it's a role that might not necessarily involve Congress. So a critical thing here, and of, and of course, you know, if, if people are not familiar with this debate, but I'm sure they are, um, there's a big question mark about um, how much control, if any, uh, Biden will have over the Senate. So the critical issue here is like if uh, the Democrats do not control the Senate, what can Biden do with existing legislation and executive orders? So within the Department of Agriculture, there's actually some really big pots of money that Biden has to play with. There is a six billion dollar annual conservation fund, for example. There's also uh, another really large, I believe it's more than 20 billion dollars. Uh, that's been spent over the past few years uh, to compensate farmers for the losses they've suffered as part of the trade wars that the current administration has got us into. Now, it's likely we're going to have to continue playing, paying that compensation and the conservation fund is already in place. So this is money that the incoming administration can use probably without having to go to Congress for approval. Um, so what there's, there's hope out there that that money can be directed more wisely uh, to encourage the growth of regenerative ag.
1: Yeah, I mean there are trillions of dollars of subsidies, uh, certainly billions of dollars. You know, crop insurance and administrative expenses and and uh, a whole range of uh, the price loss coverage and you know things where you're paid to not grow things and and, and on and on. Uh, those feel like you know uh, I hate to use this phrase but sacred cows.
4: Well, I think the sacred cow here is the US farming community, uh, given the importance both of the rural vote uh, in determining the makeup of the Senate and just more generally the cultural place that farmers occupy in our society. Uh, they're a group that's revered and revered for good reason. They're, they're the reason why we're able to eat every, uh, every mealtime. time. Um, so I don't think anyone's going to mess with support for farmers. But how that support is used, I think there is some flexibility there. So something like crop insurance is super important to the business models of most farmers. But I think there is some opening for bipartisan agreement on redirecting that crop insurance in a way that supports regenerative and other uh, climate beneficial uh, methods. Just as I said, there are, you know, if we look at, say, the pot of money for the farming losses and the conservation fund, for example, I don't think anyone's talking about taking that away. But at the moment, it's um, it's not particularly focused. And what the hope is, is that people can come in or the, the incoming administration can take that pot of money and attach it to some clearer priorities that are tied to the evidence that we know about the climate beneficial aspects of things like uh, reducing the amount of tillage or planting cover crops or or diversifying crop rotations. All these are things that we know um, are good for yields and also good for things like biodiversity and greenhouse gas sequestration.
1: Well, one other thing I want to bring up, because 2020, one of the big is- issues this year of many, obviously, was uh, the social justice, uh, systemic racism and that whole uh, bucket of topics. Did that come up in, in ag at all?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the people I reached out to was Leah Pennerman, who's the co-director and manager of Soulfire Farm in upstate New York. It's a really fantastic operation. Uh, it's a farm that focused bet- that, I mean not entirely, but a big focus of their work is on, is on racial justice in farming. Um, and Leah raised this issue of the long term, and, and I, when I, when I say long term, I mean like more than a hundred years now, of of discrimination against black farmers in this country to the extent that many black farmers refer to the U.S. Department of Agriculture as the last plantation um, for the role that the department has played in in pushing them off their land. Uh, You go back a century ago, there were a million black farmers in the United States. Now there's around 45,000. Those that remain earn, on average a fifth of what white farmers do. Um, and there were many, many stories about uh, farmers losing their land because of um, discriminatory policies within the Department of Agriculture. Now, a lot of this has come out and has been corrected to a certain extent. There have been lawsuits, there's been compensation played to black farmers, but this is still not an issue that you hear much about. Um, and, you know, that, that's why I think uh, Leah Penniman's doing such, in- such interesting work. And so she's calling for a, a, a slate of things really that include uh, expanded access to credit and crop insurance and technical assistance for farmers of colors, an independent review of farm land foreclosures to prevent uh, further loss of uh, farmland from black uh, landowners, and also debt forgiveness programs in cases where discrimination against black farmers has, definitely, has, has clearly been proven. And I, I feel like this you know, this is probably not an issue where we have the bipartisan agreement that I referred to in regenerative ag, but it is an absolutely critical one. And I think with the kind of the the coalition of forces of demographics that that propelled Biden to his victory, I think there's a chance at least that this will move up the agenda and get more attention. What will you know what will actually be enacted? I think is a it's really hard to call at this point.
1: Wow, fascinating stuff. Uh, lots to talk about there, and lots to check in, uh, check back in with you over the course of 2020 and 21 and 22 and beyond. Jim Giles, a senior analyst, at Verge Food and Verge Carbon. Thanks so much, Jim.
4: Thanks for having me on, Joe.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McHour. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: This episode is sponsored by Shell. There is an urgent need to tackle climate change, and we are determined to play our part. Learn more about Shell's climate ambition at shell.us forward slash net zero ambition.